Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. Looks like Ilhan Omar has an opponent. Royce White next on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Cup. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. I'm Vince Colonnese alongside Jason Nichols here with The Daily Caller. And uh, this week, we're talking Ilhan Omar and the quest to unseat her. Jason Nichols, who do we have? Well, we have one of the men with the largest hands in the NBA draft in 2012, I believe, <laughs> Royce White. What's going on, Royce? How you doing, brother? I'm good, brother. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So um, what, what really inspired you to actually want to run in this race in, in Minnesota? Well, I've been thinking about the political for a long time, um, just in my own journey. Uh, I came from a history where I fought the NBA around mental health policy at an early age, 21 years old, when a lot of people weren't talking about mental health, but they certainly weren't really talking about corporatocracy either, um, especially not in the context of professional sports being being a, a representative of a, of a global corporate community. Um, so, you know, that's the that's the journey I've been on for the last 10 years is it, just standing on a soapbox kind of as a renegade nomad um political establishment rebel and uh i think the george floyd situation for me was a real turning point in that you know through my journey i was able to see how powerful the mainstream media's control on the narrative is personally in my own experience with my own narrative <laughs> um but but um just in general as well because mental health is such a broad topic and so when the George Floyd situation broke out, I knew that the establishment was going to try and hijack and weaponize that moment in a variety of ways. And, uh, you know, I just I just took a ministry of truth into the belly of the beast. And, and I wanted to, you know, see what was going on on the front lines. I had been aware of Black Lives Matter um, and, and some of their, you know, protests and things over the years, but I had never been involved in, in, in any grassroots way. Um, and, and so I had only seen it through the vector of what I was shown on with content, right? whether it be TV, the Internet, et cetera. And I needed to know what was really being said. And uh, it was an interesting thing because I was able to prove to myself and some others here in the community that the Democrat platform is really a house of cards and that black people are being uh, intentionally used as a sort of calling card uh, for intersectionality which is a very per pervasive Marxist, um, you know, radical, hyper-materialistic point of view. <clears throat> and, and many black people per se in these communities don't really believe in it. I certainly don't. Um, and many of us had no idea that, that they, had, they were using these types of situations when it comes to police and, and citizen or civilian conflict to push this ideology. And so when I got out there and I saw it, immediately I just pushed back against it. You know, I marched us to the Federal Reserve. I led these peaceful protests. I marched us to the Federal Reserve. You know, I stood out in front of US Bank Stadium. I talked about corporatocracy and sovereignty and all of these ideas. 
that, uh, you know, many, many uh, millennial purple haired white liberal women looked at me like I had three eyes. Um, and so it, it was all very enlightening. And I realized that um, our political leaders had really just sold us out. They had sold us out to this cultural movement and, and this war against American culture, uh, against America, this anti-American movement. But they had also sold us out to corporations in this globalist agenda as well. And I was able to then, you know, tie the two together and, and say, I got to run for office. Royce, can, can you give us some more specifics on what you thought um, the difference was between what you saw the reality on the ground in Minneapolis to be after George Floyd died? versus the way the media was portrayed. George Floyd was murdered, by the way. He didn't just die, um, number one. And, and I'd also like to know how you define intersectionality as well. Yeah, so what I saw, well, let's-, let's I didn't just, mean to hijack your question, Vince, either. But, let's, yeah. just, let's just go back and, and, and you know, I, can, I can help sort of parse this out. Um, first of all, I played in the big three in 2019 with Steven Jackson. Uh, so he's a he's a friend of mine, co-worker, brother of sorts. Um, yeah, he's a good, good dude, really good guy, man. And um, so when the George Floyd thing first happened, I didn't know about it. Right. Uh, I, I was in the middle of writing an open letter to LeBron James, which later became a 265 page book. And in it, I had talked about the the rise of or the decay of American culture and Western culture from post-World War II on to, uh, you know, the Donald Trump presidency. That was sort of the, the time frame that I had discussed these things uh, and the rise of the CCP and the Uyghur genocide as well. Um, so, you know, I was in the middle of writing that and this George Floyd thing happened and somebody sent me the video. And obviously the first day was, you know, just sort of a, an emotional roller coaster and, and watching the video and, 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 and hearing people's reaction. And then I found out that Steven Jackson was very close to George Floyd and I knew he was gonna be coming to town. So we had a conversation about his arrival in Minneapolis. And, and, and that's right around the time the protest, the protest uh, or the unrest had broken out. And I remember being down and, and seeing what took place at the third precinct where um, people had gathered outside of the precinct and they, were, they weren't peaceful but they hadn't gotten violent yet. Um, and the, the riot control tactics from the police department were already in full tilt. I mean, they were tear gassing and, and the whole nine before anything had really gone violent. Um, I had gotten down there later on that night and, and wanted to see it for myself up close. And by that time, um, I mean, there, there was those iconic images where uh, the people of South Minneapolis had taken the, the the carts from Target and, and barricaded them up against the precinct. Uh, and they, they eventually brought the riot control, uh, you know, people out, uh, officers out, moved the carts out of the way. And then that's, I think, over the course of that evening is when things kind of got really, really violent. And then in the night, you get an entirely different group of, uh, you know, protesters than during the day. And before you know it, you know, fires, you know, fires had broken out in, in uh, at AutoZone. I mean, I was literally right there in the neighborhood when this took place. And as soon as the fire broke out, you know, I, I had left the area. But when I got home, I called uh, about 30 to 40 of, of my professional athlete 
you know, brotherhood that we play together here in the city when everybody's in town and, and keep in touch and try and support each other. And I said, listen, this is getting out of control. We have to, we have to do something. We have to do something um, to, to change the narrative here. Because, you know, for me, and what that was for us was peaceful protests. So I organized one um, and it started at US Bank Stadium. And we marched to the Federal Reserve. We marched down First Avenue. We marched down University Avenue there on the University of Minnesota campus. All peaceful, didn't have one fight, didn't have one fire, didn't have one arrest. Um, and I, what I saw was that the narrative was one of anarchy, pretty much, right? It was, it was violent unrest. Um, and and that, wasn't, that wasn't how everybody in the city felt about the situation. And we had over 7,500 people join our protest that day. And then the next one ended up being about 20,000 people. Um, and and no, nobody could have expected that. But over the course of the months, we did about seven or eight protests and, and we must have gathered about 100,000 people and none of it went violent, right? So there was a huge contrast between what was being shown on TV by CNN, MSNBC and the liberal establishment and what was going on. Now they did take the time out to highlight me as a, as a rising civil rights figure, but they didn't wanna give me any time to talk about the issues because their position was in direct opposition of mine in terms of belief about what was really going on and what was wrong with this country. So uh, a, a classic three card Monty where they go, hey, Royce is doing these peaceful protests and look at this guy who's trying to help the country in this time of turmoil, but we're not gonna give him too much time to explain his position on the issues uh, because they, they, they don't, they don't uh, align with ours. So what do you, what do you think is wrong? With, and what, think, and how, do, how does that connect to George Floyd's murder? I believe that the crime situation in this country, we, we have to figure out in this country how much crime comes from an inherent criminal nature and how much crime is a look away from a global corporate community or a corporatocracy to intentionally take philosophy uh, uh, away from education, let's say, uh, which creates a general moral decay. And I think that if we don't find those things out, then it's gonna be very hard for us to have a proper gauge on what the real dynamic is between cops and civilians. And I think that the police have been improperly placed in between the civilians and the establishment or this corporatocracy as a sort of you know, inevitable uh, security uh, to, to confront the moral decay that, that's almost, you know, it, it's, it's almost, it, it's almost a, a situation that can't be avoided, right? But it could be if we taught our citizens uh, better uh, fundamental and foundational values and ideas, but we don't. And, and, I, and it's not by accident that we don't because it's easier to control people and get them to continue to buy with reckless abandon uh, and believe in an idea like you're gonna own nothing and be happy in the great reset. And this is, this is the new model of happiness and fulfillment. It's easier to do that when people are philosophically bankrupt. And, and those are some of the things that I had tried to illuminate in, in my letter to LeBron James. So when the George Floyd thing happened, I mean, I was already queued up to go out to the front line and say those things. And I think 
a lot of a lot of liberals in Minneapolis were open to the ideas of what I was actually saying because it's really hard to deny. Um, it, it's really undeniable unless you're just you know trying to uh, basically dismiss the, the 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 obvious truth. But the context of their political framework was still Democrat Republican, and that's not by accident. That's part of the same exact control on the narrative and messaging machine uh, that, that was trying to frame these, these uh, you know, spark a racial war, let's say. Um, so, you know, I think that's the real issue in communities is we have philosophical and moral bankruptcy. And then the cops are placed there uh, in between the people and the, and the state and, and bad things happen. Now, meanwhile, there was an effort in Minneapolis to replace the police department that failed in a ballot referendum. Uh, and then Jacob Fry, the mayor there, ended up signing an increased budget for the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, you know, and that was the product of, at least according to the reporting, that many people in Minneapolis didn't want to see the police department replaced. They wanted a better police department, but they definitely wanted a police presence uh, in their communities. Can, what, what did you think of that and, and how important, yeah. what role do police play, do you think? I mean, I was, well, first of all, I'll say this. During our protest, I was very disturbed by the F the police uh, uh, mantra, right? And, and, and we, we actively, we actively um, challenged people who said those things out loud because we, the people who organized these protests, me, being, me and these other athletes and a few community members, we don't believe in that. And, and to be honest, I would say just as a general statement, I think we need to refund and overhaul police resources, um, 100%. Um, and I think it's very, very arrogant and, and almost insulting for white liberals, let's say, to talk about black communities in this sort of monolithic caricatured uh, vacuum where you know, their fight against the establishment, which does have some merit, <laughs> um, ends up being that we're gonna take police away and, 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 let, and let crime run amok. Um, black people know the, criminal, the, the crime situation in black communities. This, this is not, that's not hidden or, or something that we're naive to. Um, there was a very heavy push to, to you know, defund the police completely, abolish the police. My opponent, Ilhan Omar, talked about completely abolishing the Minneapolis the police, police department. And uh, you know, I was quoted in Time Magazine, a Time Magazine interview saying, no, no, if we, if we wanna talk about appropriations and where tax money is actually spent, whether it be in police departments, public education, uh, healthcare, any of these things, then let's do an audit. Like, 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 let's really audit the Federal Reserve and, and really figure out who's signing these bills for the spending, where it ends up going to, and, and let's really flush that out. Let's not create a caricature, caricature of the Minneapolis Police Department and let them be the scapegoat uh, for our, you know, for our misappropriations of, of tax money. Um, but again, as soon as you start talking like that, as, as a, you know, as a man, as a heterosexual man, as a Christian man, as a black man in the in the heart of these communities where these where this liberal ideology and political movement have a hold, uh, you're an outcast. And I felt that I felt that tension and energy uh, from people who did want to defund the police, uh, and, and they they tried their best to move me off of the front line of these of these issues. Um, and that was part of the modus the, the motive to say, hey, if I run for office, if I run for Congress, how are you going to shut me up then? 
You know, there's there's something that you said that I think is really important. Um, first of all, <clears throat> excuse me. First of all, I think a lot of times we we talk a lot about funding police or defunding police, and I'm not so sure that that's the issue. I think auditing, you know, uh, those structures is important. But for example, Minneapolis or excuse me, Indianapolis increased their police funding by seven million dollars and still broke homicide records. Louisville, Tucson, also. In, increased their police funding and broke homicide records. So I, I don't necessarily think that a lot of this is funding. And I also would say with you being an advocate for mental health, one of the things that's being piloted in a lot of cities uh, was to have uh, another number for people to call for when they have a mental health crisis, rather than just calling the police who are not trained to deal with those situations. A lot of people I think made the mistake of using the slogan defund the police, which sounds punitive. And I've been, I argued against that from the very beginning because yeah. it's not about punishing police for anything. It's yeah. really about putting resources in the right places and getting people who are trained to handle certain situations versus people who are not trained to handle those situations and yeah. putting them in a, in a really tough situation and burdening them, honestly. I think it's deburdening the police in, in many ways. Um, but I think also looking at this city by city, I think we should, there are some cities where maybe some police funding needs to be allocated towards some of those other things you talked about. And there are some cities where it needs to be increased. Yeah, let, let's, let's flush that out because here's the thing. When you, when you go to a global society, when you wanna to go to a global citizenship and a corporatocracy and the scope of governance has become too big, it becomes very, very difficult to address local problems at the federal level, okay? And, and so I think that as a general, in general, the scope of governance has become too big and the state has become overtly corrupt. And thus the police departments and, and policing um, bears the signature of, of that corruption. And, and I say that my, my fellow patriots on the right have a un, uh, they have a, they have a belief in the rule of law that is naive because when lawmakers become corrupt, the people who enforce the law become corrupt uh, or they have the potential to become corrupt and often do. And, and we see that with the vaccine mandates. And I think a lot of people on the right are now open to the idea that we wanna support our police and we don't wanna let the liberal establishment caricature our police, but we do have to understand that in any country in history, when the state becomes tyrannical, the police carry the marching orders. Right. So we have to be mindful of the scope of policing. However, when I say that we should refund and overhaul resources, I'm coming from a strictly mental health standpoint and that police should make more money, I believe. Agreed. I'm in, general, <laughs> in general, police Agreed. should make more money because yeah. it's a very, very dangerous job. And the, the white liberals who live in this sort of vacuumous reality TV sort of uh, lifestyle where they think that, uh, where they're pacifists, uh, they don't really deal with the reality of violence and crime, which is why they would say defund the police in black communities and black people go, whoa, whoa, slow down there, uh, white woman. Um, and, and so, but you, you take an example like that and you say, well, how much are police making? And then you say, when a police officer doesn't counter trauma, which they do often, 
are they able to actually take time off of work and, uh, uh, to deal with that trauma? Do we have enough police officers to cover so that police officers can take off, take the necessary time off of the job when they've encountered real, and when I say real trauma, I know trauma is relative, but I mean as traumatic events as you could possibly encounter in our society, some of these officers. So I think the only way for us to actually, to actually accomplish that in many respects is to pay officers more and create a better, uh, right. a better incentive for people to be officers so that when police need the necessary time off, they're not, they have cover from within their department yeah. because we have enough officers. Right, so I think that what you're stating is a left-wing position. That's not a right-wing position, that's a left-wing position. That people who are civil servants, particularly ones who make life and death decisions should be compensated really well. I've no, never- but they, but they wanted, no, that, no, not the um, left-wing position that was, not the left-wing position that was out there on the front line of the George Floyd protests. Yeah, I don't-, I don't the left position that was on the front line of some of these Black Lives Matter rallies and protests was more of the police as an institution are corrupted. And so therefore they need to be abolished and we'll figure out policing from the ground Yeah, that up. was such a minority view though. That, no, that, was, no, not but, the, but, that was not the big overarching no, but view. His opponent, his left. opponent, Jason. My opponent, Johan Omar. Okay. Well, speak yeah. for her, but not the left. No, but wait, wait, wait. Yeah. No, hold on. Wait, this is how the Overton window works. You throw out a radical idea on the far left. And because the liberal establishment has control of the mainstream narrative, and they also have control of Washington by way of a uniparty where many Republicans are actually left-wingers, left they're neocons, right? Every time they throw out a very far out radical idea on the left, and they say, come meet us in the middle, the Republican party is slowly moving to the left. Oof, uh... That's a strategy. No, it's a strategy. Look, this is how we went from diversity, equity, and inclusion being predicated around black people's uh, plight and oppression historically with citizenship and the right to vote or the right to, to share a school to now saying that in order to, in order to be diverse, uh, equitable, and inclusionary, you have to espouse to the idea that it's completely legitimate scientifically to say that a man can get pregnant. That's the left throwing something out way off into the deep waters and making the right a minority right wing in America in the political sphere come closer to the left as they try and meet them in the middle. That's a classic Overton window shift. Yeah, not... Oh, go ahead, Vince. Go ahead. Well, I just I'm sitting here kind of assessing, especially as you gave that answer about uh, cops and federal control and the inability to respond to the needs of local communities. I'm beginning to, to formulate an understanding of what makes you, at least in terms of party affiliation, a Republican. And and you're right. There are Republicans who are much more like Democrats than they, their party affiliation would probably allow them to admit. Uh, and, you know, in and Washington, that's the same thing for Democrats too. Yeah, there's a, yeah. There's a lot Washington, of them that are more like Republicans. Yeah, those labels are, are get pretty scrambled. But yeah, what, but listening to you, it sounds like fundamentally, Royce, is that you're suspicious of, for good reason, power centers of all kinds. So whether it's the Federal Reserve, it's corporate America, it's the federal government, and what you're trying to do is wrest control from all of those institutions back down to local communities and say, stop, stop interfering in the communities. Let us make our own decisions. Let us, you know, and 
And I, I think there's, the, am, I, am I right? Is it smaller is let, better? Let, let me, let me, let me, let me try and help, help out with this. Cause I do think that our political spectrum has become very um, confusing. Yes. Yeah. Because even now I hear people talk about the Republican party as a monolith. I hear people talk about Democrats as a monolith. I hear people talk about the left and right wing as monoliths. Um, I hear people say that the, the far right as a monolith and the far left as a monolith. And there is this huge spectrum of politics that people are not familiar with. Let's just be honest. I mean, most people, the, the biggest problem is that most people get their politics on the go with their French fries. Okay, and I say French fries, not to be degrading, to say that we've created a fast food political culture, mm -hmm. which again goes back to the philosophical bankruptcy. Okay, the first principle, the lack of first principles in our American culture, which isn't by accident, and it has been promulgated primarily by a neoliberal ethos that is very okay with this sort of tacit political, it's, it's reality TV politics, okay? Here's, the, here's what I think the, the scenario is when it comes to me. And I think this is the major fraction right now at the grassroots level with politics. You have two populist movements. One of them is national nationalist populism and the other one is socialist populism that is actually globalist populism. Okay, and when I say globalist populism, I mean that there is a globalist, there is a globalist elite that has a better integrated ideology about humanity down to the grassroots level and that the socialist movement has come to the socialist populist movement has come to believe that the expansion of globalism that the merger of corporations and government at the world scale will ultimately ultimately result in them having a better standard of living which is true when it which is true in a way um, there, there may be which is true in the material. But the nationalist populist movement is trying to say as the scope of governance expands to the global level, that you lose founding values and principles that make a nation what a nation is uh, or what a nation aims to be. And in, a, in the case of America, there are a lot of things, this is what I would argue on the nationalist populist side, there are a lot of things baked in to America as a nation that are worth preserving that are worth saving and that are worth using as a header to march forward through society. And part of it is a Judeo-Christian ethic. And yeah. the Judeo-Christian ethic is one that says, you have, to, in order to be healthy, let's just talk about health and wellness. In order to be healthy, you have to lose a lot of appraisal around external validation and radical materialism. On the socialist populist side, I see that the movement is basically trying to say, give us more from the top so we can indulge better in the hyper-materialism and external validation. And those are two distinctly different characteristics of the populist movement. You know, I was, I was talking with friends the other day about when, uh, when I was in high school, I played football. And before every game, we would pray the Lord's Prayer. This was a public school. We pray the Lord's Prayer. We get down on a knee. We all pray. And it was funny because being Catholic, you know, typically we don't say for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. Like right away, we don't just lead right into it. We kind of wait for the priest to do his thing at mass. And then we respond with that. So I always had to connect it. Oh, yeah, that's right. This is how all my Protestant friends do it. And but we would do that in a public school. And it felt it felt very normal, natural. And um, 
And it, in decades ago, that was much more the norm, but now not so much. I, it feels like nowadays, if you were to hear stories like that of kids praying in public school before a game sanctioned by the coach, led by the coach, that there'd be people who'd be upset about that. And, but that doesn't mean that, that moral foundations or that moral code is, uh, that there's no moral instruction. It's just been replaced by something else uh, inside those institutions. And it, it does cause me concern. I, I think you're right. When you say sort of that Judeo-Christian ethos, it matters. It matters a lot. You, 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 you bet it does. And we lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves at mass that we could get rid of God and still maintain morals and ethics at a reasonable rate, especially with the growth and development of, of this hyper-materialist society that we built. Um, if we had a quaint society, be much easier to maintain the morals and ethics without the Judeo-Christian ethic. Myself as a Christian, I think it would still fail in the end for many people and as a whole, but we'd be much better positioned to attempt it. But we have a hyper-material society that makes it almost impossible to maintain morals and ethics without some type of higher faith and calling. So, and, and so I'll, I'll, I'll give you this example, or I'll say this, what's become clear to me, and I don't think it's by accident either, what's become clear to me from being, from growing up in a black community is that many black people, for example, and many Americans who may be casual Christians, who may casually subscribe to a Judeo-Christian ethic, don't know just how far the Democratic Party platform has gone to erase Christianity or attack a Christianity in America's foundations. And, and I know this because I'll, I'll, I'll ask Black people a question like, don't you like, do you realize that that a prominent liberal movement is basically trying to say that the Bible itself, and when they say the Bible, this is the Constitution, it's the Bible, it's the it's America, that America, the Bible, and the Constitution are basically homophobic, transphobic, racist, and anti-Semitic, and misogynist as well, a sexist. And that is a very, very I've never Obvious. heard that. Like, I wonder where, who are these people? Yeah, I never, no, and, I and never so, hear these things. But you know why? And, and I don't know if you're a Democrat or not, but you're probably a cultural Democrat. And, and so what has happened to Black people is that the way that they've, the way that they've blinded many Black people in this country um, is by using race, the history and oppression of Black people as the smoke and mirrors to get this full swath support and keep your mind and visibility away from the small details where a black man gets on the view and says, hey, we need to throw out the constitution because it was it was created by slavers. Okay, so so yeah, I, I, I know what you're talking about with Ellie Mistel and I and I disagree wholeheartedly with Ellie Mistel. That he his point and you're not a Democrat. You know his point. No, I, I. Well, I, first because of all, I don't. I don't. That platform let, really believes that. Let me. No, nah, I disagree. That's Ellie Mistel speaking for himself and promoting no, it's his not. book. It's not. You know, that's him promoting a book. But I'll. I I'll just you. say I this. And, and and um, you know, again, Democrat. I vote Democrat generally. Um, I vote Democrat or or uh, independent. I I think the only thing that I disagree or major thing that I disagreed with was. Uh, you talking about the left being 
uh, corporatist when socialism is actually anti-corporate. That's that's like a big tenet oh. of, of socialism. No, it's but not. Particularly social democracy. Oh, no, that's wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. Okay, okay. Not, go ahead. It's not true. Socialism is 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 anti-corporatist insofar as it, it stays in the constraints of not becoming globalist socialism. Because in, I order mean, to have, in order to have a globalist socialist society, this is why the Great Reset says, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum says, you're gonna own nothing and be happy. That all they're saying is that we're gonna make the material high so good, you're not gonna notice that we've stolen everything from you. And that is ultimately corporatist, although they've, 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 they've provided a basic standard of, of what they have decided makes a person's life meaningful. And that, that is corporatist, but here's what I'm saying. When they say you're gonna own nothing and be happy, they're not saying we're not gonna own anything. They're not saying nobody's gonna own anything. They're saying we're gonna own everything and you're gonna to subscribe to it. It's the ultimate corporatism. They've just promoted it and, and hidden it in a socialist cultural fabric. That's well, a, me, that's a three part Monty. Let me, let me see if I can resolve kind of where this tension is for a second with a question about your opponent, Ilhan Omar. Um, she just voted this past week against the Russian oil ban. So everyone seemed to be on board with it here in the United States, but she was one of the few members of Congress that said, no, we're not going to do that. And her reasoning seems pretty sound to me, which is, I don't need, we don't need to increase prices for Americans. Uh, and that, that would have the effect of doing that. Do you see Ilhan Omar as a socialist kind of in the definition of what Jason was just raising, which is the kind of person who would be concerned about the people? Or is she a globalist in your view? Or is, it, or is, is that a distinction without a difference? I see Ilhan Omar and the squad and many of the people that are on the socialist, um, w, I, I call it the WWE left. And we have a WWE right as well. But um, I see these people as chameleonic. They're playing chameleonic politics. And her, her opposition of the Russia ban is a, is a prime example. And she's done it before. She did it with China when she spoke out about the Uyghur genocide, but then they, they bring a house, a bill to the house um, uh, to bring more firm uh, sanctions against China and the CCP. And she's on the house floor saying, hey, we, we can't bring these sanctions against China. We're gonna start a cold war. Well, Ilhan, we're already in a cold war. We're, we're, we are in the cold war still, we, we've never left it. But what, what I'm saying is that she's funded, irregardless of what she's in on personally or where she falls on these issues. Because I think a lot of people that would run for office you know, spontaneously aren't well initiated in all of these things. They're not initiated in global, global I mean, geopolitical uh, matters. Um, and and one, of the, one of the slogans of my campaign, not to be sloganeering, but one of, the, one of the messages of my campaign is that the global affects the local. So I'm not sure how much she really understands these things fully, but what I can see is that she's willing to contradict positions that to, advantageously for her political position, primarily as it relates to the narrative that gets promoted and discerned in the, mass, in the masses. And it's yellow journalism politics, it's headline mm -hmm. politics, it's fast food politics, right? Because if you're gonna say China, it, we're in a cold war with China. We're in an information war with China. We may be in a biological war with China. And pretty soon in the South China Sea, 
We may be in a guns up kinetic war. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if she doesn't know that. If she doesn't, she's not fit to be a United States Congresswoman. Oh. And that's just the reality. <laughs> I, I think you're going to have a lot of issues in Congress because I think there are a lot of people who don't have a whole lot of knowledge. But, but, in Congress. But my We're point here in D.C. My point so. to you, brother, is that it's not by accident that the permanent political class has has indulged and created a society from the top down where many people who would run for elective, elected office don't understand these things. So to answer your question about Ilhan specifically, I think that her globalism is masked by the three card Monty of intersectionality, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that the, the, the globalism is the people who fund me, they're all globalists. And in the end, they wanna to continue to take your money but we're going to promote that we're taking your money for your own good. So uh, can you, uh, I, I asked this question earlier, that's but I don't George think you Soros, That's the World Economic Forum. That's Mark Zuckerberg. That's all. And then, and then her and AOC go, oh, well, we got to break up big tech. But they're not worried about it when big tech censors somebody on the right that they don't agree with. They're all for that. So, so these type of contradictions, I, as a person who tries to, who tries to live by truth and by faith, I can't sit by and, and just ignore those and say, oh, well, that's just happenstance. It's like either they're in on it or at the metaphysical level, at the metaphysical level is where the smoking gun lies. And they're then they're binded, they're binded by a spirit of, of wickedness and, and lies. And that may be, maybe they're not in on it. Maybe they're not talking to Klaus Schwab and Henry Kissinger and and and, and George Soros and saying, hey. Hey, in the end, we're going to take all their money and there's a spot for you. Maybe they are, though. But either way, the spirit of wickedness transcends the human plane, in my opinion, as a Christian. So can you give me a, a concise definition of intersectionality? What does intersectionality mean? I have no clue. <laughs> no clue what it means. I mean, I okay, think well, you I, keep throwing it out there. Like, well, I know what they say it means. Okay, what do they say it means? And what is then, what the left, how do you the, interpret it? What the left has done is said, uh, America was built on the backs and, and labor and oppression of minorities, of, of certain groups of people. And that, that, spirit, um, that spirit spilled over into other demographics of people that can all line up behind blacks. But they're not really lining up behind blacks. They're actually... They're actually gathering around blacks and, and they're the ones marching blacks forward. Um, so it's, it's something like who's been the most oppressed? Where are the margins of oppression? Where do, where do identity politics converge or cross over into an intersecting uh, uh, middle where all of these people now have a gripe or, or a, a grievance with the patriarchy, with the white patriarchy uh, of, of white Protestant, Christian, Catholic men, uh, you know, that, that, that run America, that run the West. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's it, just a completely inappropriate premise. It's completely okay. inappropriate. Okay, can I give you like a, a more concise definition of, of intersectionality? Please. Please, I would love to hear it. So pretty much, it started, the term came from Kimberly Crenshaw, mm, mm. a law professor. And she had a case which was against a corporation. So it's anti-corporate. It was DeGraffin Reed versus General Motors. 
And DeGraffin Reed uh, was a woman who said that she was being discriminated against. And a lot of times, or General Motors said, you're not being discriminated against. We have black people that work for us. And we have women that work for us. And her thing was, no, you're looking at me and you're, you don't have any black women. So it's more pointed at being a black woman, but they were like, nope, we've got these narrow categories for discrimination. So it's, we've got black men. Here we got, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, let me, let me finish. Let me, okay. let me finish. Let me just I got finish. you. Let, let, I'm just telling you what the definition is. It's not the definition. And not, that not. is absolutely the no, definition. That's Kimberly Crenshaw That's who created the term. Monty. It's a three card. Mo- okay. I'll show you how. Hold on, let me show you how. Right. When I was the NBA player 10 years ago, mm-hmm. saying that mental health was the next big crisis of our time, that it was the greatest social issue we face, because mental health is another way to say the human condition, mm-hmm. where mind, body, and spirit converge. You know what the liberal establishment was writing in, 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 in what Wikipedia calls credible sourced publications? They were saying, hey, if you have mental health issues, maybe you just can't play in the NBA. This is the same liberal establishment that has tried to make the claim about intersecting identities all the way down to black women. But it's a grift because what it stems from really is the fact that the neoliberal white women's suffrage movement was upset that black men were given the right to vote before they were. And they went to black women and said, we didn't get the right to vote but the black man did. And so by default, the black man became conjoint with the white man in this whole concept of patriarchy. And and to bring back to the mental health point, none of them, none of the liberal left establishment media was willing to go out on the line and say, hey, well, wait a second. The guy has anxiety, a guy has anxiety, bipolar, a guy has anxiety, bipolar, depression, uh, uh, addiction. Why are we making room for them? And, and the reason why is because it's 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 but it's not it's not proper to to use identity in that manner. Because well, how about I say, hey, hey, you gotta let you gotta let a six eight guy with green eyes and a bald head in and a beard and a beard that lines up just like mine does, or else you're discriminating against me. My point is there is discrimination to deal with. There are disparities that have unfolded because of the history of our nation and, 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 and the trajectory of our nation. But we can't overlook the potential for social movements to see that and weaponize it. And it has been weaponized ultimately. So you agree. Black women have become, so, so, black let, women let, have become the unicorn to be paraded around for the church of LGBTQ. And ultimately they say, well, hey, look, if you let the black women in, then you got to let the LGBTQ in, and now you got to let the the now you got to let Sam Brinton in, okay? Who 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 is uh uh you know I I don't know what he identifies himself as, but a gay man who's doing pup porn, right? And, and saying that yeah, and he ha- now he checks the box of intersectionality at the Department of Energy. <laughs> no, that, that what I'm saying is Malcolm X already laid this out. And the liberal establishment doesn't want to really prop up Malcolm X. And it's not by accident. They don't want to, because he already said that white liberals would do this. He, 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 he already 
predicted this back in the 1960s. He said the white liberal is the most dangerous person. It's not because they don't have any merit to the claim they're making or the assessment about the social, the social economic situation. The problem is that they have their own appetites and agenda for authority. This is why when we went out for George Floyd and people said, oh, the whole system is guilty. The whole system is guilty. Burn it down. Burn America down. And I'm sitting here leading the protest, looking over my shoulder going, what? What's so Royce, Royce. Hold on, hold on. Let, Wait, one last thing. Okay. All right, go ahead. The whole system is guilty until the liberal establishment wants to make a power play through vaccines and COVID, and then we should just outright trust the system. I can show you the contradictions, hook, line, and sinker. The medical industrial complex, whether it be through the, 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 the hospitals, big pharma, or the insurance cartels, are fundamentally a part of the same system that may be fucking them more than anything because the, the liberal establishment's moniker or calling card, Hallmark, is universal health care. The reason universal health care is the way it is is because there's a medical industrial complex that is predatory. And we were supposed to follow that at that time because it was advantageous for their political position. As a black man, it insults me. The petulance of it insults me. The insult to my intelligence is, is, is unsettling. And this is what white liberals have tried to do since Malcolm X said, why is it that with an organization like SNCC or the NAACP, or all, there's always a white person who's in charge of trying to run it? Because it's not about black people and it's certainly not about black women. Okay, so I think that there are places, you said, you said a whole lot, but I think there are places where, where we agree. Number one, and this is what I think Kimberly Crenshaw, when she created the term intersectionality to get back to intersectionality, that's her point, is that it was just simple and then people took it and made it mean a, whole, a bunch of different things. Conservatives made it the boogeyman and people on the left, and I will agree with you that what Malcolm said and what Dr. King said was that you have to be wary of white liberals. And Malcolm said, look, the conservative is a fox. I mean, excuse me, a wolf. Yeah. You know what his intentions are. Some black people who are black conservatives don't know what the wolf's intentions are, which is weird, but you know, he howls at the moon from miles away. You already know what he's about. Yeah. The fox walks among you, he's an attractive animal, but he'll still tear you limb from limb. So I agree with you hundred percent in terms of that. And, and, you know, the problem is not burn America down. I agree that fundamentally and principally, which is what Malcolm would say, by the way, but fundamentally and principally what Dr. King would say is that live up to what you said on paper. If you actually did that, there would be a whole lot, at least at the very least, a whole lot less of a problem, but you don't. And now in terms of intersectionality, you mentioned Black man with a bald head and a beard that lines up and he light skin, he got green eyes and all that. You got to let know. more me in. If you don't let me in, then it's discrimination. <laughs> right. Well, check, check this. My thing is intersectionality would say there are certain circumstances where a black woman won't be discriminated against. A white man won't be discriminated against, but you will, light skin guy with the bald head and the green eyes, because you are a black man. Yeah. That's that's all intersectionality is saying. There are certain well, things. And, and George Floyd, right. may, maybe what happened to George Floyd wouldn't have happened to a black woman. We don't know. 
But no, we do know it doesn't happen to black women. Right. So well, but on anyway, mass, on average, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll say it happens to black men more. But what happened oh, to no, George Floyd? 90, in ninety-three percent, ninety-four percent of the the black people who are killed by police officers are black men. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, there's there's different things. If you come to Baltimore, like I said, they they strip search women on the on I'm the. Not, uh, I'm talking about I'm talking about death. As the yeah. result. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, strip searching a woman on, on a on a public street is is pretty humiliating. It's searching a woman's agree. vagina for for marijuana in Houston. Look, the police you know, police are out of control. Yeah. So, but hold but, on. Here, here's here, here's here, no no here's here's where I'm discriminated against the most. Where I'm discriminated against the most is within the liberal movement. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I was out there. If you're Christian, straight, and a black man. You are a black face for white supremacy. And you may not have heard that yet, or you may not be familiar with that ethos, but I'm telling you that there is a very prominent grassroots, and, and I'm not saying that it's all black people or the black community or even liberal communities, but it does have to do with this, this center of community activism that has been used and projected as a, um, as a monolith for liberal America. So I'm not sure whether liberals, everyday working class liberals, understand that this is, and give, I'll give an example. I was on a call with some black men who were talking about education and they were asking me why they're having trouble with getting the public schools to accept the teaching of black history. Now what they were trying to say was CRT. And, and here's what I told them. I said, guys, the reality is whether you understand it or not, whether you know it or not, there is a legitimate argument for the conservative Republican side of the aisle to have a problem with smuggling LGBTQ uh, curriculum or, 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 or education in with critical race theory. And they are trying to do that. There is a Black Trans Lives Matter uh, a clarion call on the front line of every BLM protest. And we had to fight that and say, why are you saying black trans lives? And they said, well, they're the most marginalized. This is intersectionality. I said, no, they're just black. It doesn't matter if they're trans or gay or lesbian or anything else, they're black. So in you trying to, 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 in you trying to discern black people from black trans people tells me something. It has to tell me something because I'm not out there saying black men are different than black women. It's like, no, black people, black lives. That's what you guys said, but it's not. And ultimately, like I said to you, this is the fallout of black men getting the right to vote before white women. In the Gloria Steinem, neo-feminist liberal movement and suffrage movement that was promulgated by a very beta male white liberal hierarchy who wants to have a war with, with, with the right that's very manipulative and they're playing the long game. Yeah, saying, hey, see, look, here's the thing, Royce. I, I hear what you're you, saying. How do you as a black man accept the idea that white people are telling you, you should give up your American citizenship, your, your American birthright citizenship for a global citizenship where now once again, you're gonna own nothing, but you're gonna be happy and you should vote for us because we got your back, but we're not gonna give you any equity. So I hear what you're saying. My question to you is, why are you running as a Republican and not an independent? Because 
you seem to be like, you know, this side, they want to do this and they, you know, there's, you know, they're conspiring against us. And then you are, are you saying that the other side somehow embraces black people? Are you saying that they love black people? I'm saying, saying that, that the Ted Cruz's of the world, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, they want they want to be down with us. If, if that's that's where you're losing me. If you no, were, no, no, no. were like, Wait. yo, I'm 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 going to be independent. Well, I'm just we're concerned with my community. Then I'll hear you. Hang on. Hang on. It's not it's not for anybody to tell a black man who their allegiances should be with. And it's no. not for anybody lie with who you want. It's not a, it's not for anybody to tell a black man who we should view as racist based on the epithets of their, their, their public profile. I had many people tell me that Steve Bannon was a racist. I got to know Steve Bannon. I developed a relationship with Steve Bannon. Um, and he's a mentor and friend of mine. And there's nothing racist about him. There's nothing racist that comes off to me. And I'm a black man. I'm a 30-year-old black man. I've encountered real racism in my life. And real racism does exist. And when the right tries to say that race isn't a thing, I tell them, go to your state penitentiary and see how people divide themselves into groups behind those walls. Okay, that, that's where you see that race is real. Um, and there's a, natural, there's a natural mechanism to race that people don't even want to discuss on the left, who could also go to the state penitentiary and see how well the intersectionality uh, idea works for them behind those walls. But I'll say this, Steve Bannon was painted as a white supremacist. What they've done is, and, and Steve Bannon, and Breitbart and the people who they say are the alt-right and the, the white supremacists, the MAGA crop, they went after the Republican establishment first. The whole Tea Party movement wasn't a revolt against the left. It was a revolt against the establishment Republicans, the GOP, the rhinos, the neoconservatives, the uniparty. But the, the mainstream media never allowed you to even be able to make a decision on that for yourself because they were afraid because the populist nationalist movement is antithetical to their globalist movement, which is why they had to paint Trump and Bannon as racist before you even had a chance to, to know what they were really saying. And what they were saying is, if you have a problem with slavery, then you should have a problem with globalism because globalism is the, the blowing out of borders for an open market, free trade, dystopian slavery system of labor. That's what globalism is. They want an open market of free labor at the global scale with no borders for a nation, which waters down the working, uh, uh, the working pool and ultimately is an attack on the working class and their wages and their job opportunities. It makes an unlimited, unconstrained field of competition in the labor force. That's, that's racist to me, okay? And when Steve Bannon calls that out and says, oh, wait, why are all these jobs going to either illegal immigrants or we're sending them off to China or India? We have black people and, and Hispanics who can be taught to do these jobs. How is that racist? Now, am I, am, I gonna, am I gonna sit here and deny that there could be people on the right hanging in the shadows, waiting for us to go back to a nationalist, uh, 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 a more nationalist culture so then they can be predatory on the minority? No, of course that's a possibility. Of course that's a possibility, but I do believe that right now in this country, there is a desire to heal the rift between blacks and whites, especially black and white men. And I think that a neoliberal movement does not want that because they have bigger plans for our country. 
our country, the plan for our country is to be the spearhead of a globalist society where black and black men and white men lose heterosexual Christian black men and white men. Let's get specific. What about our intersection? What about our marginalization? Right. And so that is where the right and the left, the right, um, the, the blacks on the right, black and white men on the right, who have a, a deep, deep historical rift and tension are now finding common ground. Because I'm looking at Bannon and saying, hey, man, when it comes time, the Christians, we're out. We're out. And, and, and so you may not be hearing them say that the Bible is anti-Semitic, homophobic, transphobic, or uh, misogynist and racist, but I can promise you they are. They said it to me. You believe in Jesus Christ? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, he's that's white supremacy. What? Yeah. It's offensive. It's offensive. It insults me. So do you, well, I, I'll let Vince get in here, but I'll tell you, you want to know what the MAGA crowd has said to me? Yeah. They've called me a nigger over and over and over again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe so I, I, so this idea Maybe. that they're, you know, but, but I'm just telling you, crowd. just, just like, just like there are people there where there are agents there on January 6th, there, what is that? Let me just say, there are people out there, I'm sure, that say the things that you're saying about the Bible. There are people on, in the MAGA crowd who say racist things and no doubt. hateful things. No doubt. So um, I think we're, we'd be painting them all so with the a Bannon, broad brush. Bannon and Trump didn't. Yeah, well, we could talk no, about hey, Trump's quotes, but, but let's, not, let's not go. We're going to go down a rabbit hole. I'm going to no, let Vince. No, no, no. Be, no, this is important because, no, hold on, wait a second. Wait a second, wait a second. Okay, I want Vince to get in here, though. And ask a question. I'm, I'm enjoying listening. Go ahead. This yeah. is important because the reality is, is that the right has been turned into a caricature by a dominant and prevailing mainstream media culture. That can't be overlooked. The, the effect of and the control of the levers of the narrative by the mainstream media cannot be dismissed out of hand. And what they, they, they haven't painted the right as, oh, well, there are some races over there who will call you niggers. It was the people who vote for Trump are racist. But I find neoliberalism racist. I find 30 million babies in the black community being aborted in 60 years racist. I find it racist to tell a young black woman if she can't, if she can't provide a hyper-material affluent lifestyle for her young black child, then it's better off that her black child isn't even here. I find those things to be racist. And so, so a liberal, and this is the fox and the wolf. A wolf might yell out nigger, but the fox is gonna get you to abort 30 million black babies and then have Joe Biden stand up at a podium and tell you, hey, black people, you go get with the Latinos because their population's on the rise and is gonna outgrow yours in a few years. So you take your grievances and you better hope that they're willing to co-opt it. Because if not, your little 13% of population isn't gonna be able to have any political capital or leverage. That's racist. I, it's offensive. That's you know, systemic was, racism. You know, <laughs> I was, I'm sitting here thinking, I, I, I'm glad you brought up the wolf and the fox again. Cause after Jason said that, it just kept sticking in my head as I'm listening to the two of you talk. And I was thinking about sort of like the underhanded, uh, you know, racial divisions that are planted in the country being, as, as Jason laid it out so nicely, uh, being the work of the fox. But the wolf, the, the howling racism, what Jason referred to, by and large, is my impression is these are just like random people on the Internet, like the kind of person who would express something so vile and so and, and howling so loud. There's enough of them. 
<laughs> I'll just tell you there, there's enough. I right? believe you. Go I ahead. believe you. I take your word for it. But my, my, hey, my I'm point here, is. Look, I'm over here on the right. And, and I'll say this. My experience from, from being on Bannon, from being on some of these conservative uh, platforms, I, I, I've had people overwhelmingly say, I'm so happy and proud that a genuine, honest individual and man is standing up for this country and God and just being a man. Mm -hmm. I haven't, really, there hasn't been much, and maybe I'm not in the message boards and forums, and maybe they are calling me a nigger up and down the road somewhere and oh, somewhere. No. There, there, were, there were always, you got to understand though, and this isn't an insult to you, and I don't want you to take it this way. But there were always, even during slavery, during Jim Crow, there was always the black people they liked. And then there were the black people who espoused different ideas and the black people they didn't like. Yeah, so same on the liberal side. They don't like the black men who are Christian, who are straight, and who believe in America. But there There's are lots of black men on the left who are Christian. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see, like, yes, they're, they're you keep bringing up Democrats. Christianity. No, no, no. There's, no. No, they're cultural Democrats. And they're accepted for now as a stopgap for an intersectionality revolution. But slowly but surely, they're using the little Nas X's to initiate pop culture and Satanism openly and homosexuality. And that the white supremacy patriarchy of this country is predicated on Judeo-Christian values. And that slowly but surely, if you believe in a truly equitable, diverse, and inclusionary society, you cannot fundamentally be Christian. Or you have to create a hybrid of Christianity. And this is where the Catholic Church now wants to say that homosexual men can be priests and wonder why we have a pedophile issue. And that came in the 1960s. This isn't new. That's what I'm saying. There is a, there is a time horizon on these things that people have not been initiated into and it, 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 it makes it difficult for us to have conversations uh, with a full throat because all the information isn't out there. So that's part of the reason why I'm running as well. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy, but I have been fortunate because I went against the NBA and was blackballed to spend my 10 years, the first 10 years of my adult life, being initiated on these issues and their origins. And that's why I brought up the black man getting the vote before the white woman. That's a very pivotal moment in this feminist movement. And, and it, so, yes, they're not coming right out and saying, you know why they're not coming right out and saying we're anti-Christian? Because there's 2 billion Christians. They can't do it like that. Because then that would be an act of war. And they don't, have the, they don't have the numbers or the power to pull the mask off like that. But slowly and surely, if you look at the hints, what Christianity stands for, what the Judeo-Christian ethic stands for, and you see what views they're espousing, let me give you the best example. Take the identity out of it. Let's talk about the order of charity. This is, the, this is the canary in the coal mine for globalism. In the Bible, in Christianity, the order of charity is self to that which is closest to me, my community and the, the person close to me, my family, my wife, my children, my extended family, my community, et cetera, okay? They want to take charity and reorder it to the global where they get white liberals to send money to Africa for mosquito nets. Mm. I mean, these are these are telltale signs of, of heresy against Jesus. And what's the problem is, is that many people in this country who are Christian, who believe they're Christian, they don't have a really great understanding of Christianity. That was part of the whole trick. 
we got to whittle away the, 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 we have to whittle away the, the solidarity or the, the, the foundations of those who do say they believe in Christ. So they have a tacit belief in Christianity. And then we'll substitute it eventually with our church of LGBTQ and, internet, and intersectionality, which by definition will say, hey, Jesus, wh why are you guys even celebrating this? This guy's a myth. This, is, this whole Christianity thing is a lie. And there are people who say that. So, yeah. Royce, uh, you're, the, way, the way you're talking today and the way I've heard you talk in the past um, is uh, it, these are big thoughts. I mean, you're, you're basically trying to confront systems within the United States in a way that we don't talk about in the press broadly. So how is your message being received on the ground? I mean, in terms of your candidacy, do you find that people are receptive or is there a lot of explaining going on? Or you, do you feel like you've got to spend a lot of time with each voter really trying to break them of whatever their preconceived notions are of the world? Look, we, we, we knew, we said on day one when I decided that I was going to submit my candidacy, that one of, that, that this was about winning, but sometimes when you win, you still lose. And that many of our politicians have crafted their message and their candidacy and their involvement in politics around a ready-made fast food uh, sort of, of, of message. Um, and in so far as that they can get in and then they tell themselves that, you know, well, eventually over time we'll get the work done, but first we gotta get in. My take on it is that we're dealing with the moral hazard from that decision right there in culture. And that I have to take the time out to explain um, these issues. And if it takes me an election or two or three to get elected because I wanted to go about it in a genuine way and explain the issues at a fundamental level, then that's the self-sacrifice that must be made to preserve the integrity of social health. Um, and, and so, you know, a podcast is in short order for me, for sure, where I can, hopefully people will be able to, hopefully people will be um, drawn to at least hear what I have to say if necessary, through what they say is controversial ideas, and for me to be able to pick apart these things for people, because I want, see, in politics, and this is on the left and the right, and remember now, to, to, to you, brother, I want to tell you, the, the populist movement, the MAGA movement, regardless of how geriatric and things they may get uh, on social media, let's say, or, or at rallies and things like that, um, they are avidly against the uniparty, and there is a uniparty. And we have to understand that there's a uniparty, that there's a Republican elite uh, and sort of rent-seeking grifters that are in on it with the, the globalists uh, on the left. And so my, my thing is, in politics, you'll hear a lot. You can't write or, or talk above a fifth grade reading level. That's a common culture. That's a common accepted normalcy in political culture. Don't write or say anything above a fifth grade level. That's insulting. It's insulting to the American people. And it's on both sides of the aisle. And if, if my candidacy and campaign can provide anything, I wanna provide that there is a utility and a usefulness in, the, in, in faith in God. But there is, also, there is also a way to be a politician that says, I believe in the people. I actually believe in the people. When Ilhan Omar goes out there, she's, she's not telling you she believes in the people. She's saying, I have a few talking points that I know the liberal establishment by and large is gonna support and push forward. So all I have to do is throw out a few, a few, uh, a few you know, crumbs of the same talking points and position and the establishment has my back. 
And if that establishment is globalist, then I'm good with that. I can't run a campaign like that. I won't run a campaign like that. And the people who I'm gathering in Minnesota to, to form a new political movement uh, in the GOP, we, we, won't, we won't engage in politics that way. And I think we'll win out over time and we, we're already getting great reception. Well, we, we wanna thank you once again for spending this time with us. Uh, I got a slogan for you. The choice is right with Royce White. Uh, I think we can go <laughs> forward with that. And um, I, I, again, uh, I wish you, you know, all the best, all the, you know, the best of luck. It was a really interesting discussion. I liked hearing, you know, all of your, your points of view. And um, I will say, I, I think it's interesting though, with, uh, you know, we're talking about global globalism and, and global corporate entities and, you know, Donald Trump being the head of the MAGA movement when he's got global corporate interests is kind of interesting. But either way, this was a great discussion. Um, one that I hope we'll be able to have again. Hopefully we'll have you back and, you know, uh, maybe we'll join our podcast one day and do a, do a joint podcast. Thank you so much to Royce White. Yeah. Uh, are you still playing ball? Yeah, I'm, I played in the big three last season. I'll be playing again this season. Um, I had my first professional MMA fight back in December. Uh, I, I unfortunately lost in that in a, in a three-round decision, but I had a great time in there, and I, was, I never felt like I was in any danger. And, and the overwhelming consensus was that I did well and have a future in MMA. So, you know, I, I, can, I plan to continue to train and, and prepare myself for, for future pro, uh, professional fights. Um, but the big three will be kicking off again this summer, and, and uh, I plan to be playing in that as well, hopefully. Um, but, but right now, um, the campaign is, is my 100% focus and just getting the truth out there. And again, I appreciate you. Listen, there are a lot of things to be criticized on the right. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Donald Trump isn't the perfect candidate. Uh, uh, he isn't the perfect messenger. But I think when you look at the score, um, a lot of his policies and a lot of the things that he talked about is in favor of citizens obtaining and, and holding their, it, you know, the, the value of their citizenship. Um, and he, he spoke a lot of truth. And listen, all of us are imperfect. I'm imperfect. My past isn't pr pretty and perfect. And the mm -hmm. things I may say in the future aren't going to be perfect. But we have to look at an aggregate of who plans to really be predatory towards us and who plans to give us a fighting chance. And those are important distinctions. All right. Thank you so much, Royce White. This is Vince and Jason Save the Nation. Peace.